Welcome to Not Artificially Sweetened, a weekly podcast where we reflect on all things diabetes. Your hosts are specialist physician Stan Landau and diabetes specialist nurse Michael Brown. We are passionate about using our talents to change lives for the better. Our mission is to build bridges of insight and understanding between people with diabetes and the health professionals that facilitate their care. Nothing is off the table here as we discuss real people, their real issues and stories, and together discover real answers to many vexing practical issues in diabetes and its management. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Not Artificially Sweetened. I'm Dr. Stan Landau, and joining me this time from Cape Town, Michael Brown. Hi, everyone. Welcome. It's a funny week this, Michael, these short weeks after the long Easter break. And uh, whilst we mm-hmm. record typically on a Friday morning, I'm unsettled, uh, upside down, as it were, looking forward to getting back to a regular five-day week, I suppose. <laughs> We've got a pretty full show today, and uh, I'm very pleased that we have another studio guest that I'm going to leave to you to introduce later on. Mm-hmm. Just for our listeners out there, thank you, everybody, for joining us, for sending in your questions, and for sharing our podcasts on your social media network. Remember, this is a free service and can be listened to on our preferential media platform, Spotify. You can also tune in on the Google Podcasts platform. Michael, a busy week in the sense of diabetes, much going on and people coming into Johannesburg for the Easter holidays to spend time with family and friends. And we know that many of the major faiths had their festivals coincide this year for the first time. It was interesting to see in the clinic this week, a number of patients who've traveled to and from Europe and the USA who say to me, you know, doc, everybody who finds out I have diabetes wants to know why I'm not on this particular drug or this drug or that drug. And I found it interesting to reflect for a moment that there isn't any advertising directly to people with diabetes in this country as there is in the US where the adverts blast all day and say, ask your doctor, ask your healthcare provider about such and such medication. I'm just wondering for our audience out there how they would feel if the pharma industry and if legislation direct to consumer advertising. You can advertise beer on television, you just can't advertise insulin. And I find that a little bit unsettling. It's hard for me to determine who in fact the customer is for a pharma company. Is it the person with diabetes or is it the medical doctor in whom they're uh, dealing directly with in order to provide care and medications to the person with diabetes. What do you make of all of this, Michael? The design of the legislation was to protect the consumer. What was regarded possibly a little bit paternalistically as a vulnerable consumer, being that they may not understand the implications of each medication, its potential side effects, and its potential benefits relative to the cost, whether that be financial cost or personal burden of taking the medication. But I think as the world moves to more independence of thought, it may be something that we could reconsider, obviously with the necessary safeguards in place to protect the consumer from possibly predatory advertising. I like the idea that the direct-to-consumer marketing should be a go. For me, it enhances and levels the playing field at the consultation time. You alluded to a more paternalistic approach, which was kind of a historic way of doctor says, doctor does, you'll follow this. And it's nice to have that engaging component. The world having become much, much smaller with the social media platforms, I really don't have any concerns if somebody comes in and I think it's great. I'd love to be able to offer him all of the treatments that have been mooted around the world. And it leads to a great discussion as to why or why perhaps not these particular treatments couldn't be done. And I I think it, it really enhances the patient's voice. So for me, you know, if I had to vote in legislation, I think it's a good thing, obviously, with the necessary caveats from a safety point of view. So just an interesting reflective point I had for this week, but let's not keep away from our studio guest. And I'm going to leave it to you, Michael, to, to take it from here. Thank you, Stan. You give us great pleasure to introduce our next studio guest, Tapi Semenya, coming to us all the way from Limpopo province. 
Tapi, we are really grateful for you giving us your time. I came across Tapi on a LinkedIn post, and I see from her LinkedIn profile that she's a law student. She's a diabetes and non-communicable disease advocate, IDF for International Diabetes Federation Young Leader in Diabetes trainee, and a professional advisor for the Luna Project in the UK. I looked through her profile and I saw a young lady who is so active in her advocacy messages. She seems to focus on a number of issues that are dear to my heart as well, including women's issues, and maybe she can pick up on some of that. Also, quite interestingly, oral health. But before I bring you in to chat, I'd like to read to our listeners a paragraph that you posted on your LinkedIn profile that drew my attention to you as an advocate. It made me realize that the work that you're doing has potentially huge significance. And you'll know what I mean once I've read these paragraphs. So here goes. Yesterday, I went to go get my blood test done. And today, the results came back. After struggling with diabetes for the longest time, I finally have reached my long-term goal of having my HbA1c under 10 and actually having it within range. I don't think anyone understands how happy this makes me because this is something that I've struggled with for the longest time. And for the first time, I actually feel as though I'm content in my diabetes journey. I've come a long way, and I remember at some point I was having an HbA1c of 16.2 and being told of the complications that I could potentially have if it hadn't gone down. Today I sit with an HbA1c of 6.2, and all I can say is that it's not easy, but it is possible. And to anyone who is struggling with their diabetes management, trust me, it does get better. I've been there, and I'm still struggling as we speak, but it does get better. Also, I want to thank my diabetes care team for always believing in me and nudging me into the right direction. And I'm also very grateful for diabetes technology such as Dexcom, as it has made my life easier and it has helped me feel much more confident in managing my diabetes. Toppy, those three paragraphs nearly brought me to tears. And I realize the significance of the change that has happened in your life. So welcome and let us know a little bit about who you are, but then bring us back to these paragraphs so that we can really try and understand the change journey that you went through. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm Tabi Semenya. I am a 23-year-old. I currently live in Polokwane in the Limpopo province. I am a law student. I'm also currently working. I've been living with diabetes for 17 years this year, and I've also been living with vitiligo and bipolar disorder. My journey hasn't always been easy. It has always been quite tricky, and diabetes is never a straight road. When I wrote that post, I wanted to share that it is a struggle, but you can get to your goal point. For me, it was a very big struggle because I had been in a lot of denial. And when I first got into social media, which was in my grade 12, I think in 2017, I wanted people to kind of not feel alone because where I live, there are a small group of people living with diabetes who are open to talk about it. So I wanted to eliminate the feeling of loneliness and say, hey guys, let's connect, let's share our struggles, let's share our hopes and let's talk about it. And it was just more of a thing of let's get into it. You don't have to feel alone. You don't have to feel like you're the only person living with this condition. And this is primarily because I'm the only person in my family who's living with diabetes. So it felt very lonely due to that fact, even though my parents were very supportive in my journey. We've heard that story on a previous podcast. Thank you so much for sharing where we had a young lady who developed diabetes in her early years, you from an early age as well, and hearing about the immense support that they received from their parents 
Tuppy, what happened as you got into your adolescent years? I'm always interested to hear that because I'm often told by my patients that that's the start of a little bit of turbulence and sometimes the, the management of diabetes can become rather unsettled in those teen years. No, definitely. For me, I got into high school. So we had relocated quite a lot because my mom works for the government. And so when I got to new school, which was in grade five, I felt very out of place. I had gone to school in classes of only 15 people. And now I'm going to a class of 30 people. And I remember this girl just commenting on my weight and things like that. So it made me feel very insecure. And so I wanted to feel like a normal child. So I rebelled and I would do things that I wasn't supposed to do. I wanted to eat sweets. I wanted to have fun and forget about this condition. So I just told myself, no, you know, I'm not living with this thing called diabetes. And I remember there was one month in which I had stopped taking my insulin. And after that month, I had lost a lot of weight. And I don't know, it hadn't been evident as I didn't take my insulin, but at some point it did. And it was just such a scare to my mom and my parents. And it was just like, why didn't you stop? She kept asking me that question. Why did you stop? You don't have to feel like you're the only person. I've always supported you. And when your parents say something like that, it feels like you literally just disappointed. You made the worst mistake in your life. And I don't know, for a very long time, I just kept going and going and telling myself that I wasn't diabetic. I wasn't a person living with diabetes. I was just a normal person. Maybe it's like the flu. And, you know, you try to convince yourself that it's normal. It's okay. Like It's just a one-time thing. It's not a chronic condition. It's just an acute condition. And yeah, that was my experience with it. Mention was made when you introduced yourself that you are juggling other chronic medical conditions as well. You alluded to vitiligo, you alluded to bipolar mood disorder. Where did those fit into a timeline in terms of the diabetes diagnosis and how, if any, did they amplify each other? With bipolar disorder, I saw a clinical psychologist because of my denial. I was taken from a very young age to talk about it and talk about my struggles. But I was diagnosed officially a year after varsity, which was 2018, due to the fact that a girl in the corridor in the race that I was living at had committed suicide. And so that is what actually amplified it. I was misdiagnosed with depression, but I found out later that I was actually living with bipolar. And then I started the treatment. And then in regards to my vitiligo, that was diagnosed in 2017. My first varsity. I had my first patch on my arm. And I told my mom and she was like, maybe we should go check it out. And then I was diagnosed with that as well. Toppy, that's a lot of burdens to bear. Sweet Life, I think, is currently doing a social media campaign that says diabetes looks like me. And I'd be interesting to hear your comment on that in terms of your particular community. I know you said there were some people who do have type 1 diabetes in that community, but just as a point of reference, let's go back to myself. In my particular community, for a male to be a registered nurse doesn't look like me. It's, you know, someone like me should be a plumber, electrician, or a doctor, or a lawyer, not a nurse. So with that kind of thing in mind, and given that you have vitiligo and type 1 diabetes and so on, do you look like your community or not? I'm interested in that dynamic. I mean, I'm not against the whole diabetes looks like me um, factor, but I, I kind of feel as though, remember, we are trying to spread the word of, about Anybody can get diabetes at any given moment in their lives. 
whether you look like me with vitiligo and, you know, bipolar and all these other conditions or whether you look like anybody who's normal. I just think, and I'm not saying that it feeds into stigma or anything like that, but I just feel like we can look anyhow we want to. And I mean, I still could be living with diabetes. It doesn't need to be defined to a certain category or anything like that. And yes, I think the Sweet Life campaign does go towards that. But I think for me, I'm more on the aspect of diabetes doesn't define me. So I could be 10 million things at once, but it still doesn't define me. I'm not defined by my condition. Mm. I think that campaign is saying exactly what you're saying, Tapi. Diabetes can look like anyone, and that's really the import of that approach, is that we shouldn't be judging anyone by what they look like. Diabetes can look like anyone. Yes, definitely. But I still feel as though there's a deeper message that's also not shown in the campaign, which is diabetes does not define anything. For sure. Yes, it does say we don't look a certain way and stuff like that. But I think the message we need to head towards is it does not define mm-hmm. us. And we could look any other way or do so many other things and still be living with a condition like diabetes. I buy into that. I think that's an excellent insight. How many times we've said on these podcasts that using the stigmatizing language like diabetic really defines a person and paints them into a corner as having simply that and the alpha and omega of their well-being. You've put it very nicely that it's one of many attributes and features of your entire lived experience. Tuppy, your selection of uh, post-school studying in the law, was that in any way influenced by your journey up until the time you had made your decision on where to head off to high school? Was that just by the by and you have a separate interest for law? I studied economics at first and then I I failed dismally and then of course I I loved law from the get-go because I love business and the business side of things and now in my journey I'm realizing maybe this is the right path because when you attend you know you do advocacy you tend to meet with people and you're like yeah no the language now does match and so I do believe that I was destined for law and I think I took the right path and this is hence why I also want to specialize in health law as well. So that's quite an interesting mix Tapi the practice of law being there to advocate for the just administration of the law. How does that fit in now with your advocacy turn in life? Does it support it? Do you use it? Do you intend to make a mix of the two and maybe create a niche for yourself as a specialist in maybe health law and advocacy? Yes, definitely supports it in a huge manner because now, as I see, in any space, especially diabetes advocacy, there's a certain jargon which is used. I feel as though law has enabled me to understand that jargon. I'm not saying that you need to have a law background to be an advocate. That's not what I'm saying, though. But I do feel as though I am now prepared to go into higher spaces. I could now understand the works being done by the WHO or the UN and things like that. So it definitely supports me in my vision, my goal, my end in being a health lawyer. When you had sent through your bio for us to become familiar with in the run-up to this podcast, I was impressed to see right. You said it wasn't an easy time. You've been hospitalized a number of times for DKA over years and within uh, many times within some years. You said it was thanks to the guidance of one doctor that you began to take a positive view. You wanted to hear more about the specifics that had changed your journey and how you had moved from kind of this period of darkness to a more enlightened period and had done well and had thrived in terms of your management. What happened with that doctor? What kind of guidance? And so you're referring to that sounds as if that was a tipping point in your diabetes management. 
So with that doctor, in my first year, I had a huge incident happen to me. I was found lying in bed in my room and I was unconscious and a lot had happened. And so this doctor was the one who had been treating me. And so I woke up and she said to me, look, you need to take control of your life. You need to understand your diabetes. It's your condition. You need to learn more about it. Shed light on me in a way another doctor has never done so. I find that normally with doctors, they tend to give up on us quite easily. With this particular doctor, which, well, I'll name her, it's Dr. Hurry in Garden City. She spoke to me in a way in which another doctor had never spoken to me. If I have to highlight somebody in my advocacy journey, it has to be her because she made me want to go out there and research more and actually take the time to learn more about my condition. Yes, at the beginning, I know you guys spoke about how there's a lack of information on television and things like that in regards to insulin and that. For me, I took time and I went out there and researched things that I'd never seen before. I've never heard before. I'm now able to go to my doctor and say to her, look, I heard about this insulin. How does it work? Do you think it would fit into my management plan? And actually have an open conversation with her, which I've never had with any other doctor. So for me, that has been a game changer in my life because I can now have a conversation and have an understanding and have a proper explanation of what is the latest technology, for example, of how different management plans work. And that for me has really helped. So it sounds like this doctor gave you space and openness to engage rather than directing your every move. Does that sound right? Yes, definitely. That by definition, Michael, is coaching in Mm. essence. You have this guide. You have somebody not telling you what to do, but facilitating Mm. and enabling you to get the best care for your management of your diabetes. Mm. I want to listen about that. Are you coming to consultations with an expectation that a doctor says and the sense of dread and fear? I know a lot of patients who have had diabetes for 50 years or more, we've spoken about this golden cohort, will often come in and share their experiences from back in the past where you literally did and you were afraid not to. These days, there's much more engaging aspects of management. And I think that for people with diabetes, one of the great attributes of care that you can look for in your healthcare team are teams that are open to dialogue and are receptive to patients' inclusive in that conversation. And uh, I would argue that if that aspect of care is deficient, I'm going to be bold enough to say it, Michael, then you're probably not getting the best diabetes care and Mm. ought to seek care elsewhere. I agree with you, Stan. I think that's an excellent advocacy message. Yes, if you are not happy with the care you are getting, you need to seek care from someone who will facilitate your care in the way that you need to go. And I think this story from Tapi really illustrates that so powerfully, how her doctor gave her that right to speak. Such an important thing. Tapi, the journey you've had, you alluded to, was in part enabled by the application of the continuous glucose monitoring, in your case, Dexcom. Were there other aspects, whether they be technological or not, that have enhanced the nature of your care, that have gotten you from the, well, at least numeric elevated values in terms of the HbA1c's to far better diabetes management, as you alluded to? I must say, social media has helped me in a huge way. It was those connections, going to those conferences. I mean, I'm part of um, DDoC Voices. So for me, it helped me find the right kind of information. And one thing about living with diabetes is that you really need to seek what works for you because what works for me won't necessarily work for the next person. So for me, it wasn't just Dexcom and eating the right diet or anything like that, but even those conversations of, you know, how to handle insulin and hearing from other people, even though we don't give out advice on how to 
to take the units and stuff like that. But just hearing people's journeys and how they've improved their lives, I think that played a huge role for me and also helped in changing my mindset in regards to seeing diabetes as a, a way of life and also a way of just improving the quality of life in regards to using the technology as well. I can't fathom still the notion of the isolation that many of our studio guests have alluded to in respect to their diabetes, mm. whether it was an initial hospitalization, often for young people when they're pretty sick with ketoacidosis at diagnosis, or in the management that has gone past. And again, we come back time and again to the notion that even in HIV, Michael, it's out there, it's in the community, people are comfortable speaking about it, you see billboards, you know, on the national roads, HIV has become kind of mainstream, still have a sense that diabetes is not getting the airtime it deserves and, and isn't in enough conversation conversations for people and Tuppy's experience in terms of that isolation really hammers it home to me and it's heart rendering to have to hear it time and again it and is. I'm blessed that there is this groundswell of advocacy that has emerged independent of the healthcare providers because if I've listened to people with diabetes over the last couple of podcasts they're saying we're not waiting for you doc we're going to go out there we're going to blaze our own trail we're going to get what we need to live the healthiest lives that we can with this condition. And that's what this podcast exists to support, is that groundswell amongst people with diabetes. We see that need and we support it. It brings us great joy to share with you another Sweet Life Diabetes Community Advocacy message. And it ties so beautifully in with what we've been talking about, the power of social media that Tapi has experienced in her life. And here is our next message from the Sweet Life Diabetes Community. Let's have a listen. Here's what people with diabetes wish you knew. It can feel quite lonely at times. Having to make the right decisions about food, having to think about your blood glucose all the time, having to be aware all the time that there's this chronic condition that you're stuck with for the rest of your life. It can get kind of sad and lonesome. And the difference it makes when you meet other people living with diabetes who speak your language and know what it feels like to go low and know what it feels like to go high and know the frustrations of always having to resist the delicious things. It's just the most amazing feeling. So if you haven't already, please suggest to anyone you know living with diabetes that they join a community. There are all kinds of online diabetes communities. Obviously, I think Sweet Life is the best one, but there are a bunch. And there are also WhatsApp groups in Cape Town and Joburg and meetups that happen all the time. Peer support is so powerful and can have such a big impact on diabetes management because it reaches out a hand when you're feeling burnt out and lets you know that you're not the only one. The important message on peer support very nicely to a piece I was reading not too long ago out of the Diabetes UK Journal update. And pleasingly so, and not to discount the conversation we're having here today, but peer support exists equally in a necessary need for the person with type 2 diabetes. Mm. Published a small study out of Canada looking at the role of peer support in an older population with type 2 diabetes. And one of the interesting take-home messages there from peer support is, firstly, people who are going to offer peer support, uh, in other words, people with diabetes should be experts in their own right. And I think our studio guest today is such a person. The second thing is, is that very often the people whose diabetes management is at the furthest end of optimal may well be the people in most need because that's the person who's often struggling the most. And the study confirmed that. And even though these people were receiving their care in a specialized center, they can still be hiding in plain sight that you can be getting best quality care or presumed best quality care at a specialist center doesn't mean that your needs for the diabetes management are going to be met by your healthcare provider 
Tapi, if you had a message for healthcare providers, we heard from Bridget saying, listen to us, it's a long haul, it can be isolating. If you could look back now and tell a healthcare provider, whether it be your medical doctor, it might be a specialist diabetes nurse educator, it might be the dietitian, what kind of things would you be saying now, looking back and saying, guys, listen to me for a moment, let me make this point. It would definitely be be open to dialogue. Along with listening, I think we need to open up those conversations, be transparent. The dialogue aspect for me played a huge role. I cannot fathom how it changed my life. For me, it was just, it was life changing because I felt like I could now go do research. I feel like a doctor in my own life, but be open to dialogue. And I can't come into your room and you, the first thing you're saying to me is, you know, your HbA1c is 14. I think that would put me off in a huge way. Even the, just the care aspect, the way you talk to us, it plays a huge role. But yeah, that would be my message. I saw another great insight on one of your LinkedIn posts. It goes as follows. Understanding the relationship a person living with diabetes has with their condition is so important. Maybe comment on that as an extension of what you've just said. That came from a point of, if I'm not doing well in my diabetes management, I'm obviously not going to be receptive to what my doctor says if they're telling me about an HbA1c of 14 or anything like that. So it's the conversation around, how are you? Mm. Hi, Tuppy. Nice to meet you. I'm Dr. Whoever, whoever. How are you feeling today? How do you feel about your condition? How do you feel about living with diabetes? How has it been over the last three months? What are you struggling with? Those kind of questions. So that open dialogue. Let me share with you my feelings on where the wheels can come undone. The conversations we're having are predominantly taking place in the outpatient setting or in the day-to-day clinical setting. Where I feel frustrated myself as a healthcare provider is those patients with diabetes who may land up in hospital. Michael, for me, that's a very vulnerable time where you're lying in bed and the doctor's looming large over your bed. That paternalistic approach I can't get out of my mind's eye. So... I think that that voice mustn't remain only in the well person in the outpatient setting. I think those conversations are no less important in the hospital Mm -hmm. time because you could argue that guilt and blame could be laid on the person. You know, you've landed up again in hospital with DKA. And uh, I think it provides a lovely opportunity then to continue the narrative in the inpatient setting. It's very upsetting to hear patients' experiences when they come back to a clinic after having a hospitalization, let's say for DKA. And a lot of the good work that the team has worked hard together with the person with diabetes has become undone because of a glib word and said, well, you must be here because you probably forgot to take your insulin. Yeah, that doesn't sit kindly with me. Absolutely. Again, it points to the importance of training, I think, for all healthcare providers. And whilst we recognize that not all healthcare providers have an interest in or want to practice in the care of chronic conditions like diabetes, I think that even acute care practitioners should have those necessary insights into the management of diabetes so that they don't derail what we are trying to do to empower people out here in the community. Happy, have you found inconsistencies in your experience of the past amongst the healthcare team? He said, she said, then being referred to an additional practitioner who's kind of been undermined some of the messages that you've been dealt with? Definitely. I was actually part of the CDE program and one doctor actually took me off. And I remember how I felt about that. I was so angry because, I mean, it was a good program and I got everything I needed under one roof. And it was just because at the time I hadn't understood, I hadn't established my relationship with my condition. And of course, at that time I was struggling. So for a doctor to feel the need to kind of just take an irrational decision based on my treatment at the time or how I was not taking my treatment felt kind of unfair to me. But yeah, they are are a lot of inconsistencies. I see it a lot with doctors, especially here in the Limpopo province. We don't have specialists to deal with the condition of diabetes. You don't have endocrinologists. So it's a bit difficult. Are you having to travel for your care to leave your province? 
Yes. Okay. So, I mean, that's that's an interesting point that in order to get the nature of care that's meaningful for you to enable you to live the best and healthiest life you can as a person with diabetes, you're having to make great strides. I suppose there's room in the advocacy there that it, one shouldn't have to leave a province to access care for diabetes. It's bizarre. Mm. Mm. Toppy, today, with the insights that you've got, if you could speak to your doctor who took you off the managed care program that you're on, what would you say to that doctor to help him or her to manage your needs the way you needed at the time? Is there any insights you could give back to that doctor? Living with diabetes for about nine or eight years, but it takes time. So patience is really key in different people. And I wish they had been patient with me because, I mean, look at me today. I am able to actually go out there and advocate and be this voice for the people as well. But I feel as though if that doctor had been patient with me, like the current doctor that I'm seeing, things would have been way better. And I could have probably had a better insight on my diabetes management as well. I could have probably had a different journey instead of having it happen the way it did. Ultimately, I think chronic care boils down to having a consistently good relationship with your team. And I think from what we've heard today, having good relationships and opening up those relationships amongst the broader community, mitigating some of the isolating aspects of diabetes and that separateness and care needn't be provided in mm. that manner. I'm really pleased, Tuppy, for what you've described. You're in the throes of becoming an expert patient in that sense, in that you're now able to offer peer support to people around you, whether that be within your own province or from a global point of view, looking at your CV, you're involved in work uh, outside of the borders of the country. Tell us a little about that. Um, yes. So as I said, I am part of the Rock Voices, which is a group of people living with diabetes, all types of diabetes, including 3C, Modi, and all these other ones. And what we do is we give an entrance into conferences and we share the patient, well, not the patient, but the, the person living with um, diabetes experience. And yeah, and then I'm also part of the IDF Young Leaders in Diabetes Program, which is really interesting as well to see that we all feel alone as we're growing up, but diabetes has brought us together. And we are making strides as young people living with diabetes. And then I currently joined a parliamentarian group in the UK, Parliamentarians in Global Diabetes Network. Do you think the South African government is receptive and open-minded as the UK may be? Um, we still have a long way to go, I must say. And yes, there are plans to collaborate and see where we can see common ground in regards to World Diabetes Day, for example, just a campaign around that and spreading awareness about diabetes. But slowly but surely it will be done. I think it's wonderful that digital technology has enabled us to build bridges globally, like it's enabled the production of this podcast over three cities and to bring people who are in widely disparate geographical locations together and and to conduct educational and advocacy initiatives. I think it's just such a blessing of the modern age. Tapi, we've spoken about the additional medical conditions that you are receiving care for over and above type 1 diabetes. A quick question here, are there aspects unique to women's health that are perhaps being overlooked in management of diabetes? Yes, menstrual health is one of them. For me, it's something that has never been illuminated. I think when we talk about menstrual health, we've never been given the information about it. I struggled for a very long time because it has messed up my diabetes management for a long time, but because of bipolar as well, now I'm forced to be on things like contraceptives as well. So there isn't so much education in regards to menstrual health and pregnancy. And we still have that whole thing of when you're diagnosed, you're told, oh, you cannot have kids and that's it. But I see it's being put into 
lot now and more topics even including menopause are being put into light so there's still a lack of education in regards to that especially in South Africa and I believe that we do need to know more about that it needs to be illuminated and put at the forefront I think the take-home message for me from the podcast today is education, education, education. And Michael, we know that the late Larry Distiller began and ended diabetes career of spanning, you know, 40 plus years, that education was the bedrock. In those days, though, the education was predominantly, let's get the healthcare providers understood so that they could disseminate that knowledge. I think for me in the modern day social media, the connected world, people with diabetes are beginning to drive that education process and bringing the healthcare provider and bringing the person with diabetes together is going to be necessary to provide the modern day management of diabetes outcomes that we all expect. And in fact, you could argue from an advocacy point of view, demand. Mm. And I think also what has changed in education is that we've moved from a very fact-based approach to, as has been highlighted by Tapi so well in this episode, more of the process, the interaction, the consultation process that necessarily has to look at attitudes, values, and beliefs that underlie the behaviors that the practitioner sees or that the person with diabetes sees and to somehow find a middle ground. So the coaching aspect of education, apart from giving knowledge and facts, but taking it to a position of insight where we see things that are not readily apparent from the facts. No, definitely. I've seen a lot of medical journals now, including a lot of people living with diabetes opinions, which was something that was never done before. And I'm glad it's being done because the patient experience is so important Mm. and it's very different from the healthcare experience. And that's something that's happening in diabetes specialist circles. It's recognized as a need, and we support that. I'm going to take away the term Tapi has used throughout the episode today, and that's illuminate. Mm, I think it's a very powerful word that I can start reflecting over, start illuminating topics and having Mm. greater sense. And if you're only looking under the flashlight, you're only going to see what you see. But if you can illuminate an area, it becomes much more obvious what the things that you can see. And more importantly, Michael, the things that perhaps you can't see. Absolutely. Bringing to light what can't be seen, I think, is where the missing link is in diabetes care. For those of you who've been listening here, it would be great to hear from you in terms of comments or perhaps even your own experiences as a person living with diabetes or perhaps as a person caring for somebody who has diabetes themselves. Our email address is podcast at cdediabetes.coza. Remember, we use these emails to help form the types of shows that we're having and encourage us to seek out the best guests and those guests who really can provide expert insight into their lived experience with diabetes, ultimately enhancing the learning experience for us all, both healthcare providers and people with diabetes. Michael, a jam-packed show. Looking forward to our next time together. Perhaps you'll be in Joburg and I won't be able to see this glorious view you have behind you, making me rather jealous here as we say goodbye for today. <laughs> thank you, Stan. And Tapi, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. We really appreciate it. Your insights you've given, especially healthcare professionals out there who possibly listening to this episode, something to reflect on and something to help them change the way they practice so that they can change the lives of their clients for the better. It's a pleasure and thank you for having me. I truly enjoyed this episode. I've never been so open in a podcast as well. So this is truly a first, but it was truly an experience as well. Thank you, Tapi. And I'm glad that you felt comfortable to be open. Uh, That's really what we're aiming for. Bye, Tapi. Thank you so much, eh? Okay, bye. 
So thank you once again for joining us this week. We'd like to remind you to participate in our listener polls. They are an important part of the post-episode feedback mechanisms that we've put in place to help us shape future podcasts for your benefit. So please give us your insights and illuminate us for the path ahead. Until next week. Thank you for joining us on Not Artificially Sweetened, where we aim to build bridges of insight and understanding between people with diabetes and the health professionals that facilitate their care. Anything we discuss is for your reflection, education, personal growth and entertainment only. You join this podcast at your own risk, and we are not responsible for any omissions, errors or unwanted medical outcomes. Please note the following important specific disclaimers. For people with diabetes, the health professionals on this podcast are not your personal caregivers. Always discuss any new information with your diabetes team before acting on any aspect of it. The views and opinions discussed are those of the hosts only and do not represent those of any other entity. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you encounter in this session. Anything you learn or experience here cannot substitute for personalized professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. For health professionals working in diabetes, always discuss any new information with your clinical team before acting on any aspect of it. You are personally accountable and liable for any choices made in a clinical setting according to your level of training and legal scope of practice. Any information or insights gained here must be used with your professional discretion and with the developing base of clinical evidence, local and organizational laws, regulations, guidelines and protocols. Good luck with your diabetes care missions. Till next time. And it's a wrap. Yay!